So we've come to the end of our series in the Psalms, All the Paths of Yahweh. And honestly, I've kind of come to the end of myself. So I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks of vacation because I have a chunk of vacation just sitting there. And it will be burned up as with fire at the end of the year if I don't use it up. So I'm going to take a couple of weeks of vacation. Here's what I want you to do while I am gone. Number one, I want you to know Jesus intimately. And number two, I want you to trust Jesus completely. And then number three, I want you to repeat all that. Do that while I'm gone for a few weeks, please. In fact, I'm going to try to do that while I'm on vacation, too. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm just, we're just staying home. It's a staycation. It's actually not a bad thing to try to do those three things every day, is it? To do those things until we see Jesus face to face. So Pastor James will be preaching the next two weeks, and then when I return, we'll do a two-week series on something, I don't know, maybe we'll start our Advent series early, I have no idea, and I'm not going to think about it until my two weeks of vacation is over. I'm literally unplugging after the picnic today. I am off. Um, so I don't know where we're going to go, we, and, but our Advent series will start on November 27th unless it starts a few weeks early. Lord willing, that's the plan. And if for some reason that plan gets changed in any way at all, then don't forget to know Jesus intimately, trust Jesus completely, and then repeat that. That's how you keep from losing your mind on whatever path the Lord has you on right now. David Pallison said, We have good reasons to be anxious. God gives us better reasons to trust him Gather your reasons. So this morning, right now, we all have good reasons to be anxious, good reasons to be full of fear, good reasons to be heartbroken and to despair. But Jesus has given us so many more reasons to trust him. So as you read your Bible and hear sermons and sing songs, gather your reasons for trusting Jesus. Start collecting them and then come back to them often. And that's what David wants us to do after listening to his song titled Psalm 37. David isn't just being a a typical singer-songwriter here. He has a goal to get us to trust Jesus. We saw it last week with verse 3. Trust the Lord and do good. David wants us to learn to wait on the Lord and to keep eternity in view, especially when we see unbelievers running around like they own the place. And they do that, don't they? They don't know that we own the place. God owns this, and we will inherit the land, the new earth one day. This, there's a song that says, this world is not my home. That's wrong. This world is our home. We're just waiting for Jesus to make it new. But this is our home. This is not the unbeliever's home. They run around like they own the place, but they don't own the place. Jesus does. And I almost went off on a whole other sermon there. See what happens when you deviate from your manuscript? So keep eternity in view when you see believers running around like they own the, uh, they own the place. That's what David wants us to do. Because when that happens, when unbelievers do that, you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus or you will lose your mind. Because it's when we know Jesus intimately that we begin to trust him completely as we go through all the hardships of life. 
So if you don't know Jesus very well, you aren't going to trust him when life hits you hard. Instead, you'll panic. You'll freak out. You'll do things to numb yourself. You might just binge watch a show over a whole weekend just to numb the pain. And you might even age yourself in the process. And who wants that? Who wants to age early? I don't. David doesn't want that for you. David wants you to enjoy God so that you can enjoy life. So that you can enjoy life as unbelievers are seemingly living their best life and running around like they own the place. So we're going to pick up uh, where we left off last week in Psalm 37. And yes, David is still bothered by wicked people. So look at uh, verse 22. Is that where we're at? I wrote verse 2. That's wrong. Man, see, I told you I needed a vacation. The steps, hear the word of the Lord. The steps of a man are established by Yahweh when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord Yahweh upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so, you, so shall you dwell forever. For Yahweh loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. So it should be verse 23. I guess I left the three off. Um, as I mentioned last week, Psalm 37 has some Proverbs DNA in it. Many of these verses are just very generic principles like what you find in the book of Proverbs. But know also that everything that David says about God in this psalm is an invitation for us to know God more intimately. In this section that we're looking at, that we just read, David wants us to know these things about Jesus. First, that Jesus establishes our steps and he upholds us. And he does not forsake us, and he loves justice. So Jesus is directing every step of ours on whatever path he has us on. We're not out here winging it on our own. And that means that sometimes you have to talk to yourself when life feels out of control and say something like, my steps are established by Jesus, he's leading me, he's guiding me, I will trust him. Now, that's a very simple prayer. There's really nothing fancy about it. But that prayer just might calm you down and talk you down from the ledge. That Jesus is establishing your steps and you will trust him. And even though our steps are being directed by Jesus, that doesn't mean that we won't fall. It doesn't mean that we won't make some mistakes. It doesn't mean that we won't sin so badly that we actually make a mess of our lives. I mean, that might happen. But as David says in verse 24, though we fall, though we trip, though we stumble, we won't wipe out in such a way that it's over. The reason we don't totally wipe out so that we are a hopeless case is because Jesus is upholding us through it all. As Ray Ortland says, there is nothing in Jesus that will ever fail us. We may stumble, we may fall, but Jesus will never fail us. 
He will catch us. He will uphold us. There is nothing in Jesus that will ever fail us, no matter how much we fail, no matter how much we fail him. Let me ask you, have you ever suffered or gone through some trial, some ex- maybe you experienced some sort of relational strain, and you thought, I'm going to lose my mind? But you didn't lose your mind? Have you ever gone through some painful, downright awful affliction, and you thought, I'm going to go crazy? But you didn't go crazy. Or have you ever gone through such heartache where your heart was absolutely breaking, and you thought, I'm not going to make it through this? And you made it. That's what David is talking about here. That was the Lord upholding you. That was Jesus keeping you sane, sustaining you, holding you up. That was Jesus not failing you. The reason you didn't throw in the towel and cry uncle and quit is because Jesus was holding you up. You're here today, right now, Because Jesus determined to uphold you. And all of that is proof that he hasn't forsaken you. That he doesn't forsake us. As David says in verse 25, he says, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. I chuckled as I read that verse earlier this week because David says, I am old, but I have been young. Doesn't being old imply that you have been young? (laughs) But David said it. It made me laugh. And also it laughed because right about the same time that I was reading that, I saw this comedian talking about how people will come up to other people and say, here's a picture of me, and they'll show you a picture. Here's what the comedian said. He said, one time a guy handed me a picture and said, here's a picture of me when I was younger. The comedian replied, every picture is of you when you were younger. Well, every picture of David is when he was younger. And now that he's an old man, he'd tell you that Jesus will not forsake you. And that's a promise that's as old as Deuteronomy 31. I mean, think about this. This I will not forsake you stuff is an old promise. It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 31. And it still works This is a vintage 1400 B.C. promise that still runs. The engine still cranks on this promise. And it's for you, Christian. The preacher of Hebrews uses it in chapter 13 of his letter. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you can use that promise for your life because it was written for you. So whatever happening in your life, whatever heartache you are feeling, tag that promise on the end. Say, I am experiencing blank, but Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. I am experiencing heartache, pain, drama, suffering, sorrow, cancer, whatever. But Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. So you just fill in the blank with whatever you're going through and you hang on to that last phrase. Don't let go of it. Don't let go of the fact that Jesus will never let go of you. He will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, it goes against the very heart of Jesus to forsake us.
He just can't do it. It's not in him. He can't forsake us. He doesn't have it in him. And so here's what Psalm 37 is doing. It's giving you a peek into the heart of Jesus. His affection and care for his people runs deep and covers all that we experience in this life. His heart just oozes out of this psalm. All the things that David says that Jesus does for us in this psalm come from his heart. Okay? These are not duties. This is not a job description that Jesus has to perform if he wants to get a paycheck. No, this is what he wants to do for us. This is who he is. This is his heart. He upholds us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Listen, no one is twisting Jesus' arm to do all of this Psalm 37 stuff for us. He loves to do it. Like you love to do certain things. Like I love to watch the Dallas Cowboys play football, but win when they play football, right? That's what I love to do. I love all kinds of things that I do. This is something that Jesus loves to do. He loves to uphold you. He loves to see you when you're weak and suffering and come along and say, I'm going to carry that lamb in my arms close to my heart. He loves to do it. He loves to sustain you. He loves to never leave you or forsake you when you tell him, no, thank you. I want that sin. He loves to not leave you in that moment because he loves you. Because his affection runs deep. Deep even for you. At the same time, we must remember that the devil's hatred runs deep for believers. The devil's hatred runs deep for you, especially when you are suffering especially when your heart is breaking. The devil loves to see God's children hurting. It delights him. It brings him joy and it's sickening. I mean, the devil loves to harass and hurt sinners. He loves to come to us and remind us of our sins, tell us, can't believe we did that, can't believe you did that, you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a pastor and you did that? He loves to come and harass us and hurt us because of our sins. That tickles him pink. But I think there's something more that he loves. He loves to hurt suffering people. It's one thing. He gets a kick out of reminding us of our sins. But the devil loves to see suffering Christians and come in and press on the bruise and then say things like, Jesus doesn't love you or he wouldn't have let this happen. So understand this. When trouble and sorrow enter our lives, we, are, we have to be keenly aware that Satan will come with a truckload of lies and whisper, to, whisper them to us that it might raise doubts in our minds about God's generosity, his love, and his trustworthiness. Let me say it again. When trouble and sorrow, heartache, relational strain enters our lives, we have to be keenly aware that Satan will come with a truckload of lies, like burp, 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 backing them up to unload them and to whisper to us doubts 
so that we might begin to doubt God's generosity, his love, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness. This is why David tells us about Yahweh in Psalm 37, because David knows these lies. He's heard them. David knows that when suffering and sorrow enter our world, it's like the devil can smell blood. When your heart is breaking, the devil can smell blood. He's like, I want to go after that one, and I want to stick a sword in him. He rushes in to whisper, did God really say? Did God really say that he would uphold you by his sand? Did Jesus really say that he would never leave you or forsake you? Because it seems like he's left you. seems like he's forsaken you. Did he really say that? And that's why David might remind us to know Jesus intimately and to trust Jesus completely and then to repeat that. But David also reminds us in verse 28 that Jesus loves justice. In his book, Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just, Tim Keller says this, We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only the righting of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and vulnerable. This kind of life reflects the character of God. It consists of a broad broad range of activities from simple, fair, and honest dealings with people in daily life to regular, radically generous giving of your time and resources to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence, and oppression. That's why God loves justice, because human beings are made in his image, and when we treat them well and care for them and stand up for the oppressed, God is pleased. It's a reflection of his character. I see my people doing something that I'm like, doing something that I love. And all of this is the natural outworking of the gospel in our hearts. Because God has shown kindness in the giving of his son, we show kindness to others. We love Because he first loved us. That's justice. But justice also includes the wicked getting the just punishment for their sin. If they don't turn and trust in Christ, then they will get the just punishment for their sin. The wicked will be cut off. We'll see more of this in a moment. But let's keep going because David will tell us that God preserves the righteous God preserves us even when the wicked scheme and plot to take us out. Look at verse 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Yahweh will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for Yahweh and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Again, these are generic principles like we see in the book of Proverbs. We know they're general, generic principles because we are righteous in Christ, right? But do we always utter wisdom? The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, David says. Do we always utter wisdom? Our tongues don't always speak justice. We don't do this all the time, right? Because sometimes... A lot of times, my mouth says things that have nothing to do with God. So remember, these are general principles and descriptions of the godly. This is what is typical of people who follow Jesus. Not perfectly, but this is kind of typical. We seek to be a blessing to others. And we do that, David says, because we have God's word in our hearts. His teachings, the Hebrew word Torah. We have his teaching, his Torah 
shapes us. We walk in his paths. We walk in his ways, and the Lord preserves us. But, David says, we also have to wait. Verse 34. The Hebrew word used in verse 34 for wait, it's the Hebrew word kavah. It's a word that we've seen several times in this series. It captures something of the tension of waiting. In all the Semitic languages of the ancient Near East, this word and all its related forms have meanings that suggest tension or twisting, like like something being twisted up in knots. In fact, the Hebrew word for rope or cord, kav, comes from this word waiting, kavah. So there's a reason why in the ancient Near East, one of the words for weight is related to the word for rope or cord or to twist in knots. Why? Because when we have to wait on the Lord to intervene, when we're waiting on him to answer our prayers, like David here, our souls are all tied up in knots, aren't they? When we have to wait on the Lord, there's tension. We're we're being twisted like a rope. Twisted up in knots, our souls and often our stomachs, right, are twisted up in knots and we have to wait. And that's not fun. It's not fun to wait, is it? Who likes waiting? I've never met a person who says, you know what, man, I love waiting. I just love waiting. I go to the DMV just to hang out. I make appointments at 4 p.m. and I show up at 8 just because I love to wait. No, nobody likes to wait. Kids really struggle with waiting, don't they? In his book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, Gene Shepard describes waiting for a package to arrive as a kid. His book, by the way, In In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, is actually the basis and the inspiration for the the Christmas movie, A Christmas Story, you know, with Ralphie and his Red Ryder BB gun. Okay, It's based on this book. Here's what Gene Shepard said about waiting for a package to arrive. And in the movie, I think it's when uh, Ralphie's waiting for his Ovaltine or his little decoder to come in. Here's what he says in his book. Every day I would rush home from school and ask, is there any mail for me? Day after day, eon after eon. Waiting for three weeks for something to come in the mail to a kid is like being asked to build the pyramids single-handed using the number three erector set, the one without the motor. Everything comes to he who waits, I guess. At last, after at least 200 years of constant vigil, there was delivered to me a big, fat, lumpy letter. There are few things more thrilling in life than lumpy letters that rattle. Even to this day, I feel a wild surge of exultation when I run my hands over an envelope that is thick, fat, and pregnant with mystery. Waiting on God is like being a kid waiting for something, right? In fact, we are kids, aren't we? We're God's children. So we get antsy when we have to wait on God. When we have to wait on God, it does feel like 200 years. But we wait knowing that he will answer in his time, in his way, according to his wisdom. David says that in his time, God will exalt us and the wicked will be cut off. And so we wait. We wait for that ultimate justice, don't we? knowing one day Jesus will come back and exalt us and we will inherit the new earth and we will run around like we own the place because we do. And it's going to be a party and a celebration. You know, our kids at their school on Friday had this little festival carnival thing for two hours and you bought tickets and they could run around and play games and do all kinds of, I mean, snow cones and cotton candy and everything. It was great. And I told Heather, 
this is what heaven's going to be like. Just right, but we don't have to pay $25 for 25 tickets or whatever it was. It's just free. You just walk up to an, a table. It's like, here's more tickets. Go have fun. That's what heaven is going to be like. A celebration. Running around snow cones and cotton candy and just being God's kids. I can't wait. Because Jesus will exalt us and we will inherit the new earth. But to get there to that party, that carnival, that celebration, we're going to have to do a lot of waiting. We have to go through a lot of our stomachs being twisted in knots. And that's no fun. Because it's hard to endure long seasons of waiting and twisting. And when we're in those long seasons of waiting and twisting, we need to remember that top priority is that we need to know Jesus intimately, trust Jesus completely, and then to repeat that. To quote David Pallison again, he said, God wants us to know him so intimately and trust him so completely that our desire to fix our troubles in our own way will no longer consume us. We want to fix our troubles in our own way, don't we? We have great ideas about how God can answer our prayers. God, I've got some great ideas. You can answer this prayer and do this. We think we have the best way forward. We think if God would answer according to our wisdom, then all would be well. But when we live life that way, it just consumes us, doesn't it? We're praying, we're like, Jesus, I want you to do this. And it can consume you. We get consumed with when and how God answers and God intervenes. And it kills us and it just eats away at us. So what God is calling us to do is to know him even more intimately, no matter how long we've known him. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 75 years. There is more of Jesus to know. And he wants us to trust him completely to leave our troubles with him, as we saw last week, to roll our cares and burdens onto him, and then to wait, and then to watch, see how he answers. So, get to know Jesus more as you suffer. If your heart is breaking, get to know Jesus more. If you're waiting for him to answer some prayers, and you're getting antsy and fidgety, get to know Jesus more. Read your Bible. Read good books about Jesus Listen to sermons about Jesus. Have conversations about Jesus with others. Let me recommend two books if you want to get to know Jesus more. Maybe you've read these. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I first read that in 1993. I wish what I read in there had stuck. I've read it several times over the last 10 years with the elders, another men's discipleship group, the Global Outreach Missions Committee read it, and still things jump out. I'm like, how did I not catch that? Well, you didn't catch it in 1993, and you're still learning. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. A little bit easier to read is Enjoying God by Tim Chester. How do you enjoy the Father? How do you enjoy Jesus? How do you enjoy the Holy Spirit? Easily, uh, it's an easy read. He's a great author. He just brings it down from the top shelf to the very, he places it on the floor. So if you're like me and you're a toddler spiritually and you want to be able to grasp truth, enjoying God by Tim Chester. If you've read those two and you want to go deeper, and when I say deeper, I'm thinking like ocean, you know, way out there. Uh, John Owen's book, Communion with the Triune God. That book is my wonder wall. 
communion with the triune God. It's, there's a version edited by Kelly Capick and Justin Taylor that have saved me several times where I was on the brink of despair and didn't want to continue. And Owen taught me to commune with my father, how to commune with Jesus, my Savior, how to commune with the Holy Spirit. So those are three books. If you want to get to know Jesus more intimately, grab your Bible and grab one of these books and start there. Get to know the Trinity more and learn to have sweet fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, especially if you're in a season of waiting where you're being twisted. Nothing will do your heart better than to know the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as you wait. Okay, David really likes to talk about the wicked being cut off because he added that phrase to yet another verse in his song. So this song should not be titled Psalm 37. It should be called Cut Off the Wicked because David is going to use that phrase one more time. He can't get away from it. Look at verse 35. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Yahweh helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. So David once again mentions the wicked being cut off. He says one day they're relaxing under a tree. The next day they're dead, gone, poof. But the righteous, those united to Jesus Christ by faith, have a future worth looking forward to, David says. So our future is so bright that we have to wear shades. And our future is bright because David says God is the one who saved us. The salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh, he says. Listen, we did nothing to save ourselves. You you need to understand that Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. It was all grace. It was just pure, unmerited favor, freely given to people who didn't deserve a lick of it. Listen, we don't deserve a lick of God's love. We don't deserve a lick of his grace or his mercy. We're born sinners and rebels. So David is telling us that we had no skin in the game of salvation. It was all God. As Chad Bird says, you silly Christian. I mean, any sentence that starts that way is going to be good, isn't it? You silly Christian, you never had a single thing to do with saving yourself. It was all done to and for you, while God, for a time, just let you carry on your little daydream that you had a little skin in the game of salvation. But now you are awake to the reality. It was Jesus, only Jesus, all along doing it all for you and in you. And David knows this well. The salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. It's all grace. And that ought to humble us. When's the last time you were just flat out humbled that Jesus saved you? I mean, tears running down your cheeks, kind of humble. Snot running down out of your nose, kind of humble. Just pure joy that his amazing grace saved a wretch 
like you when you wanted nothing to do with him. I mean, you probably thought you were a good person going to church, but in your heart of hearts, lost, dead. And he came and he said, I want you to be with me. And he saved you. When's the last time you were just humbled by that? Today would be a good day to marvel once again that grace rescued you when you were lost and dead in sin. A great day to say, to sing, or maybe even get a tattoo that says the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. But Jesus doesn't just save us and then be like, see you later. He is also our stronghold, the one we run to when life is overwhelming. The Lord is our stronghold in times of trouble. And it's in times of trouble that we really get a more accurate view of what's in our hearts, don't we? That's the one thing that trouble does. It exposes our hearts. Suffering exposes what's deep inside. Trouble, relational strain exposes what is deep inside of our hearts. And so trouble has a way of drawing out what's in our hearts, drawing out what we are trusting in, what we are hoping in. And sometimes what we are trusting in is our own wisdom. Sometimes what we are trusting in is our own ideas and thoughts about what God should be doing in our lives. It's like we focus on our plans where we, quote unquote, help God with how to help us in our troubles And that becomes what we trust in. What we think should happen, we trust in. Well, there's a better way. We trust his wisdom. We trust that he knows what is best. What we do is just run to him, our stronghold. We run to him, our refuge. That's what we see in the Gospels, isn't it? People just running to Jesus for rescue. David Powelson said this about when people meet Jesus in the Gospels. He said they often say, number one, I'm in trouble. Number two, this man can help. Number three, help me. And then number four, thank you. That's what we all need to do today. Admit that in some way we are in trouble. And then believe that Jesus can help us. And then cry out, help. And then say, thank you. I was thinking this week about how faithful Jesus has been to me. How I've done all this stuff before. How when I ran to him, he was my refuge. He has been faithful to me. Through the years, it has always been him. He's the one who has always been there for me. I've been forsaken by people. I've been abandoned. I've felt all alone. I've felt hopeless. I've felt like it couldn't get any better. I felt like I couldn't go on another day. I've had my heart ripped open and all along, it was him. Always him. He was the constant, the ever faithful friend, full of compassion, carrying me, sustaining me, upholding me when I thought I couldn't go on one more day It was him, always him. He's always been there, always. Sometimes trouble comes our way like Job, wave after wave after wave. There's heaviness, family stuff, heartbreak, sadness, suffering. And we may be tempted in those dark times to doubt God's love. That's what Satan would want. When wave after wave of sorrow and trouble come upon us, you know what? 
the devil can smell blood. But all we have to do is look to the cross. And there we see the love of God in full volume as Jesus sheds his blood for us. That's where we see God's love. Let's close with something that D.A. Carson said. He said, in the darkest night of our soul, we have something to hold on to that Job never knew. We know Christ crucified. Christians have learned that when there seems to be no other evidence of God's love, they cannot escape the cross. So look to the cross this morning and see Christ crucified for you. Clear evidence of God's love. Look to the cross and know Jesus intimately and trust him completely and then repeat that. I actually close with a quote by John Owen that I added here at the bottom of my manuscript. John Owen said, We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. We're never nearer Christ. We never know him more intimately than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love for people like us. So we're going to pray and stand and let's sing and get lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love and goodness to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. What a faithful friend you have been to me. So many troubles, sorrows, through 50 years of living, and you have been the constant. You preserved me when I was just a baby and quit breathing and turned to black and blue. I don't remember that. My parents do. But you were there sustaining me, upholding me. Always there. And you've been there for every one of us. A faithful friend, our constant. We've turned away from you so many times. It's unbelievable that you would still have us. It's just who you are. You can't turn away. It's love that we've just begun to scratch the surface to understand. And so we just say thank you. We want to know you better. We want to trust you more completely, Jesus. We want to get lost in holy amazement as we sing again at your unspeakable love. And may it bring glory and honor to your name and help us to share this love with others, we ask in your name. Amen.